Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We appreciate it as we wrap up another interesting week. We're going to be talking today with Charlie Arnott from the Center for Food Integrity. Some new research showing that the consumers are losing trust in some major food brands, some big names that have been around for quite some time and we usually think of uh, when we think about food products well some of the younger consumers losing confidence in some of those name brands we'll take a look at that and what it means for those in the food business including farmers and ranchers so that's coming up on our program today also kurt blades will join us from the association of equipment manufacturers we'll take a look at the january ag equipment sales numbers scott Irwin, university of illinois ag economist will join us we're going to take a look at this uh basis in the country uh, in some places very strong basis and has been for some time what's behind that what might be ahead we'll be talking with scott Irwin about that in a bit but we start things off with phil brasher from agripulse communications phil good to talk with you again uh some questions around the mfp payments one question is whether there'll be more of them this year but some other questions floating around uh kind of looking into uh were they done properly uh you know, what questions might be brought up about this as an investigation is underway? What are you hearing on this? Well, the inspector general for USDA, Mike, was on Capitol Hill this week. The inspector general, of course, is the internal watchdog. There's one for every department. Uh, they're supposed to be independent. Uh, the inspector general, anyway, was her staff were grilled by Democrats in particular on uh, an appropriations subcommittee that oversees USDA about this market facilitation program. Uh, it's a lot of criticism uh, from Democrats, particularly from the Midwest, about the way this last program in particular was structured and the way the payment rates were set. As you know, there were much higher payment rates in the South in areas where cotton is uh, grown, uh, much higher than in many cases these county rates were much higher than they were in the Midwest. That's what a lot of the criticism is, uh, has been. Uh, the inspector general uh, told the lawmakers that uh, they are in basically a three-stage investigation of the MFP, starting with whether USDA uh, properly used its statutory authority to do this in the first place. Um mm-hmm. And then uh, she was not real clear, but uh, obviously the, the uh, uh, Democrats are wanting uh, them to look at the how it was, uh, how the program, how the rates were set, uh, and so forth. Are there other countries raising questions about these payments? Haven't heard much yet. Uh, that's uh, been some have been some suggestion that, uh, for example, I think some criticism 
uh, has actually been that the payment rates are actually overcompensating uh, producers for trade impacts. Um, uh, and that, the, and that the, uh, the U.S. may run into some problems with the WTO down down the road. Uh, the allegation being that, uh, the concern being that uh, we are going to blow through our ceilings on uh, uh, allowable payments under, w, under our WTO agreements. Which will make it interesting to see if this has any impact on the decision whether or not they're grant more MFP payments this year? Well, maybe. I think it's going to have a lot more to do with the uh, campaign and how things are going. Uh, you know, a lot of expectation. It is uh, the president is up for re-election in November. Uh, so, you know, it, I think it's going to have, I think the biggest factor is going to be what happens to the farm economy. And, of course, that's going to hinge on what happens to commodity prices uh and that's got a turd hedge on uh, what uh, what happens to our exports, especially to China. Is there really a surge in exports this year that uh, pushes commodity prices uh, up significantly? In that case, we might not see one. But uh, if we don't see that, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the administration to, to do another round of MFP this year. And I agree with you. I think all that is the uh, biggest factor in determining whether there will be or not. Uh, if the administration feels it's needed, especially going into the election. I don't think the president's going to be overly concerned about uh, these criticisms about that have been raised <laughs> by some in Congress or even by some other countries. Uh, just kind of my feeling on that. All right, we're talking with Phil Brasher with AgriPulse Communications. Phil, uh, what's the reaction? What are you hearing from the about the president's budget proposals? Uh, always there's you know reaction. People saying, oh. Uh, shouldn't cut this, shouldn't cut that. always find it interesting. Um, people say we need to cut, we shouldn't overspend. But basically people are saying, we all do this, don't cut the areas that I want spending for. So uh, w- what are you hearing on this? Well, it's interesting. Uh, uh, the one person who probably brought it up most prominent, prominently was uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, this week said, uh, here when uh, bankruptcies that are at a high um, there's always problems with the farm economy. He, he, uh, the president goes and uh, proposes all these cuts in uh, farm bill programs. Uh, so Democrats trying to use it, obviously, against the, the White House. I think, you know, farm state uh, lawmakers, farm groups, and to sort of brush it off, I think the biggest concern, I mean, this, these proposals to get crop insurance, uh, to tighten payment limits, uh, these are all farm bill debates. Generally, the concern has always been that these cuts come up in the context of some kind of effort to cut the deficit. This happened with crop insurance uh, back in 2015. There was an agreement that uh, uh, wound up including a a cut to uh, what goes to the money that goes to crop insurers. Uh, That was ultimately uh, uh, taken back. in a vote in December uh, where Ted Cruz flipped uh, as he was uh, uh, running for the Iowa caucuses. So they can, those things, when the, when the White House keeps putting out these proposals year after year, I think the concern is that they keep a life that um, uh, they ultimately show up, if not in a farm bill debate, 
in uh, when Congress becomes interested in cutting the deficit again. And as we've seen over and over, they are proposals, and very seldom, if ever, do they is the final result the same as what's been proposed. Uh, Congress steps in, and already you've seen some lines being drawn uh, uh, by the ag members of Congress saying, no, we're not going to let that happen, or some things like that. So, But it does set for an interesting debate, and uh, uh, we'll be talking more about that certainly in the future. Phil, always good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Bill Brasher with AgriPulse Communications. All right, strong basis uh, in many parts of the Midwest and has been for some time. What's behind it and how long could it last? We're going to talk with University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin next on AOA. Stay with us. information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams and joining us now university of illinois ag economist scott Irwin. scott good to talk with you again uh quick your thoughts on uh, usda's uh, latest numbers the WASDE numbers anything stand out to you you know that what stood out to me was the strategy that they uh, landed on for not taking into account the phase one trade agreement. Uh, I think that's the real news out of that report. As the USDA said, until we get specific numbers, uh, we're not going to make major changes. So we're all waiting on the, and to see uh, just uh, when and how much China will buy. Yep. And I think the USDA said we're in the same boat as everybody else. Mm-hmm. So that'll be a big question hanging over us uh, here in 2020. Last year, the question was, will the deal get done? Now the question is, uh, will they live up to the deal and, and win? So we'll wait and see on that. Meanwhile, it's been interesting in the countryside, the strong basis, really strong in some areas. Um, is Do we know why? I mean, it, we kind of think we do, but maybe is there something more behind the scenes? Should we dig a little deeper on this? Right. Uh, I I think so. Uh, There are really, I think, two schools of thought here, Mike. One is focusing on uh, traditional fundamentals explanation for the really strong country basis, and that would be that we've got some combination of uh, less production and higher demand, and that uh, it's it's a form of a short crop kind of scenario, and we get a tight uh, basis and even maybe an inversion. So that's the first school of thought. The other school of thought is is that the MFP programs have been such huge dollar amounts that they're literally changing uh, farmers' storage patterns. Hmm. Which is interesting. Uh, we just in my last segment, we were talking about MFP payments and the impact and the investigation that's going on into them. Uh, I got a feeling these MFP payments, we're going to be talking about them for some time to come. Well, absolutely. They're, they're clearly, uh, because of the sheer magnitude, you know, we're talking programs over $10 billion and, you know, most of that money, you know, going into kind of the heart of the corn belt. So, you know, the dollar flows are very large. 
although interesting that there are some in Congress and others questioning why did more go to the South this last time than the, than the Midwest? So that's an issue there. But we do know it it enabled some far. I mean, it was very much needed by many farmers. But you think that maybe those payments really have an impact on this basis? Then I think it's possible. I don't have any way to test it, but it is consistent with what we're observing. Uh, you know, it's possible that farmers are uh, looking at those uh, large dollar payments and allowing them to run kind of an informal non-recourse loan program so that it's tying up the grain, you know, uh, for maybe six, eight, nine months like the old non-recourse loan program. Or even I've said on Twitter, it's uh, maybe like a form of an informal farmer-owned reserve. Yeah, I saw, I saw your tweet on that. That brought back some memories when I saw that phrasing. Um, so, <laughs> well, so basically, age, yeah, I am. So basically, uh, if you got those MFP payments, that allowed, under this scenario, we're saying that would allow farmers not to have to sell grain they might have normally had to sell to pay bills or whatever. That made a tighter situation and uh, drove up, uh, strengthened the basis in, in many parts of the country. And that uh, is a hypothesis that uh, I think is logical. I think the the real concern that I have is to make sure that farmers understand that if this is in general going on, it can't raise the average cash price for the year. It will just flatten out the pattern of cash prices. And more concerning is if this scenario is true, the grain really is there. We really do have a uh, carryover of around 1.8 to 1.9 billion bushels, which is plenty. And a day of reckoning for the basis is going to come in a sense when all of those uh, bushels come out of this informal loan program. It, it seems, Scott, there, there are a lot of uncertainties. Uh, we just talked about the uncertainty of knowing what China's going to do this year, even though we have the Phase 1 trade agreement. But we're still trying to get a handle on, on last year's production. We're still trying to get a handle now. We're talking about how much is actually there in storage. I think we have a lot of questions about the quality of that some of that grain. And at the same time, we still have some harvesting to do from last year's crop. I mean, wow, As here we are mid-February. Uh, some big questions still out there. Absolutely. And, you know, number one is indeed what was the true size of the 2019 corn crop. My goodness, I got a couple of really nice pictures from uh, people close by to where you are in North Dakota this week uh, that were just harvesting away. And it was really interesting, uh, in essence, how good the corn was standing, test weight, uh, quality, yield was, uh, I think, better than anybody would have expected. So, uh, maybe those late, late harvest-related uh, losses were not quite as big as we expected. That's kind of where I'm coming down at this point. But there's still, you know, a lot of corn in the field up there in North Dakota and northern South Dakota. So, uh, like you said, some real uncertainties on that first big starting point, which is simply how much do we have. Yeah, that story is yet to be finished. Uh, we're still writing that one. Uh, meanwhile, we're starting to look ahead to spring and starting to get reports already of, uh, you know, flooding possibilities and those concerns, which brings into mind 
how many prevent plant acres could we have this year? Well, I'm going to stick with the historical average for now. The the, the data indicate that you know what happened last year was just truly extraordinary, exceptional here in the Eastern Corn Belt, kind of a once in 60 year event by uh, historical standards. Yes, I know it. It is remaining, you know, concerningly wet. There's no doubt we're just staying wet here in Illinois, but I'm I'm still going to bet on the historical odds that we won't have anywhere near the prevent plant that we did last year. Yeah, you would think it would not be nearly as much, but uh, you wonder, you know, what what you know, what we were at twenty million acres last year. What what's the historical average for prevent plant acres? I'd have to go back. I don't have that off the top of my head, but I think it's only a few million acres. Uh-huh. So yeah. uh, I think it's in the range of maybe uh, two to four million acres. So it's not a very big number. Yeah, so we'll see how that plays out this year. But we're kind of getting that time. We start looking, what acres will the markets be trying to buy? And right now, it seems like kind of don't know, kind of uncertain. What What are you seeing there? I That's, you know, basically in corn and soybeans, we have, you know, about 15 million acres, roughly, of prevent plant that's got to go somewhere. And so the, the question is, you know, is more of that going to go back to soybeans or more of it going to corn? Uh, but right now, it, I, I think we're looking at a very large corn acreage number from what I'm hearing and what I see in the, 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 the current incentives uh, for corn versus soybeans. But there again, as we saw last year, that can be weather-related. You might start off planning to plant a lot of those acres to corn, and weather keeps delaying and delaying and delaying, and you wind up going to beans. It certainly is. You know, after last year, Mike, you you have to say every scenario you can imagine is at least on the table. That's right. Yeah, we were saying in 2019, let's turn the page and get to 2020. We just assume and hope, I guess, that it's going to be better, but you don't know, and you wouldn't think it would be quite like it was last year, but we will see. Uh, Meanwhile, real quick, Scott, before I let you go, um, that recent court case on EPA's handling of the small refinery exemptions, do you think that changes how they handle them moving forward? Yes, and I think that's probably the number one most underreported story in ag right now is how the RIN market is voting that this was a significant shifter of policy on implementing the EPA. Uh, the D6 ethanol RINs have uh, shot upwards and now approaching 30 cents a gallon. This is a real uh, thermometer of how the RFS is going to be implemented going forward. And I think that it looks like we might finally be getting some good news. All right. We'll be watching that closely. Scott, always good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Uh, Always my pleasure, Mike. You guys take care. Take care. University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin. Up next, Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. Stay with us on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. 
Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Always find the research from the Center for Food Integrity to be very interesting. Joining us now is the CEO for the Center for Food Integrity, Charlie Arnott. We'll look at some of this uh, research about um, some of the most trusted brands in America. Charlie, thanks for joining us. This is interesting, and I guess some of it breaks down uh, on age, right? For some of us that are older, some of these food company brands that we're so familiar with and uh, used to, I guess... As we're, if we're older, we put more trust in them, but for the younger generations, not so much. Is that what the research is telling us? It is, Mike. Thanks. It's great to be with you on Valentine's Day, and we'll hope for, uh, for a warmer weekend and a warmer next week. But it is actually true. Uh, what you were saying is some research that we synthesized for Morning Consult that looked at the 25 most trusted brands in America. And as you noted, for those of us who are our boomers, kind of those legacy brands that we're accustomed to seeing in the store and that we saw uh, marketed through mass marketing on television and radio and newspapers, uh, hold a special affinity for us. And they hold a special place in our heart uh, and in our mind, and that makes a difference when we make those shopping decisions. But the same is not true for others, uh, for those who are younger. So the top four food brands, there were only four, I mean, the 25 most trusted brands in America, only four legacy food brands made that list for baby boomers. Uh, it was Hershey, Cheerios, M&M's, and Campbell's Soup. For Gen X, only two of those legacy brands made the list, only one for the millennial top ten, and no food brand made the list for Gen Z adults. So what that what that's telling us is that the legacy brands don't have the cachet that they once had. They don't have the power they once had. So this is a brand-new marketplace, and, of course, then the question becomes for those who are marketing food and everybody in the food chain, including farmers and others, is so what is important going forward? And what they've determined is that those uh, younger consumers really view ethical uh, concerns as a higher priority. And historically, we may have thought of those as kind of nice to have but not driving purchase behavior. That has changed. And for younger consumers, they really are changing how they think about a brand and the brands they choose to to frequent and uh, that they are loyal to. So it shows that having strong ethical or political positions, uh, treating employees fairly, producing products in an ethical and responsible way are priorities for those shoppers. So it's really interesting as you begin to see that transition because it's very different than uh, when you and I grew up and we saw um, television commercials for Cheerios and Jell-O and Campbell's Soup and 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 online or on the, on the television as we were watching our, our evening shows with our families. But that's fundamentally shifted. The other thing now, that's really interesting about this that younger consumers really believe they have a better understanding of what's going on in the food system, and that's because they have access to information on their smartphones. So their information or, or understanding may or may not be any more accurate, but they believe they have a better understanding because they have access to unlimited information. That is, that's very interesting. Uh, I, I, I often use this in my speeches. I say the customer isn't always right, but the customer is always the customer. So you have to, uh, you, you may disagree with the, with the customer, but uh, if you're producing and selling a product to them, you're going to have to uh, respect uh, their opinion, whether you think it's right or wrong. So what we're seeing here, and this trickle-down effect, we've seen this happening over the last few years Charlie, these companies that we're talking about, some of these big brands, they react to that kind of uh, uh, research and data, and then they, in turn, put pressure on the suppliers, ultimately the producers at the farm level of 
we want our uh, products produced in a certain way. So this does have an impact all the way through the food chain. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think that's one of the most interesting conversations that is just beginning to take place today is as these environmental social governance, ESG, or what we used to talk about as corporate social responsibility, as those requirements continue to increase, they always flow down to the point of production. So whether you're a farmer or you're manufacturing bicycles, the person at the point of production is always asked to make the change and always asked to bear the cost. There's finally, at the very, very early stages, there's finally beginning to be a conversation around, hey, wait a minute, we have to find a better way to equitably distribute those costs across the supply chain. Uh, because if they're going to continue to make demands for certain production practices and those production practices increase the cost of production, mm-hmm. then those costs have to be shared equitably across the system or you end up destroying your supply chain. And there is growing concern about the viability and resiliency of farmers, um, and rightfully so, long overdue. And so this is, a, this is a really interesting inflection point. We're just at the very early stages of it, but I think there is an opportunity for those in agriculture to try and foster a very constructive conversation with the food system to say, hey, we get it. We understand you're under increasing pressure that that brands are competing in a way they've never had to compete before and you're going to make different requirements of your supply chain. We want to partner with you to be successful, but we also want to partner with you in understanding how those costs will be paid for and to have a better understanding about how that happens across the supply chain in such a way that your supply chain remains viable and you can be competitive in the marketplace. That, I think, is a a great opportunity for agriculture and a conversation we need to begin to foster. But think about it in terms of partnership as opposed to being defensive and resisting the changes that are coming. The changes are coming. And and to your earlier point, you know, it's a great statement. The customer isn't always right, but the customer is always the customer. And so if these are going to be new demands that are going to require changes in operations that are going to actually result in increased cost, now, we have to have a conversation about how those costs get equitably, equitably distributed across the value chain. We're talking with Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. I find these conversations uh, fascinating because I think we really have to look. Is When are we in a trend? When is there a shift going on? And maybe there is one now because I think a, a lot of the feeling in the past on food is price first. In many cases, people would look at uh, how inexpensive it would be compared to a more expensive product now those who want organic have been willing to pay more for it but are we you think in a trend now a shift charlie then where more and more of the consumer base is saying uh we don't mind or we're willing to accept higher price as long as uh the production meets these criteria these standards we want to see met yeah, it's a great question. And, and in my mind, in, in, in the information that I've seen, it clearly is a trend, not a fad. Um, you know, BlackRock, one of the largest private equity investors in, in food, uh, came out with their letter to their clients essentially saying they expect sustainable, resilient, and transparent portfolios going forward. That's going to be the expectation. If they're going to invest in your company, they expect sustainable, resilient, and transparent portfolios. And having a conversation with the, the CEO of a large food organization, large food company, who is really bottom line driven, very bottom line focused. He said, look, when when economic interests and ethical concerns come together, that just has to be a new way of how we think about doing business. And so I think that's what I think that's where we are today, where we have to look at how do we merge 
these ethical concerns and economic interests in a way that helps the supply chain be resilient, as Black as BlackRock called for, right? Sustainable, resilient, transparent. And I think the the key for agriculture is to be stepping into that conversation about what will it take for us to be resilient. Some of that is to be flexible in how we view these issues and how we think about them, how we talk about them. Some of it is making sure those costs are equitably distributed across the supply chain. So I think it is a new day. It's a new opportunity for us to engage in these conversations, but it's triggered by some fundamental changes in consumer expectation and behavior, uh, the reduced uh, reliance on legacy brands, and people's belief that they have uh, access to information that helps them make better informed decisions about whatever the topic, including how food is produced. Yeah, there's a lot in there, that's for sure. Uh, Earlier you said this needs to be more of a partnership, because I think we've seen in many cases up till now that it's been more uh, a heavy-handed approach where the the companies would say to the producer, you have to do it this way. We're going to force you to do it this way. And it's been almost an adversarial uh, uh, relationship. We've got to work together on this, right? Absolutely, and I think that's the opportunity for both uh, food system stakeholders and those in agriculture, but it's going to take leadership, Mike. It's going to take those in ag to be willing to step into that space to say, we fully understand that the expectations are changing. We are willing to continue to to innovate and partner with you to make these changes. I mean, there's no sector of, of, of the economy that's more innovative than agriculture if you look at it as a whole, but we need to have a conversation about how we're going to do that in a way that allows us to be profitable and sustainable as well. And so that's that's the opportunity is to to resist being defensive, uh, resist being uh, the, the the desire to kind of fight back, but to step into that and say, okay, this is changing. So let's have a conversation about what it means to you. Let's have a conversation about how we can support that change. And then let's have a conversation about how we can all remain economically viable as we transition to whatever the new expectation happens to be. Yeah, and we're running out of time, but if not, you run into a situation like in California with Prop 12 and you're forced poultry producers to have certain cage sizes and all of a sudden they have to make a decision. Can we afford to change or do we have to get out of business? So those are tough decisions. Yeah, that's the worst possible outcome. When you have a legislative Uh mandate that, that really doesn't result in anything productive, that's why the opportunity exists for us to really engage in the food system to think about how we need to modify going forward so we don't find ourselves back in the situation that we did with Prop 12. Right. That's that's the point there, I think, key point. Uh, work it out before it gets to that legislative mandate that causes uh, so yep. many uh, huge challenges. All right. Charlie, always, uh, always enjoy talking with you about these topics. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Have a great weekend. Take care. Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. All right, up next, we have the latest uh, ag equipment sales numbers. Uh, What happened in January? Any kind of a rebound or are we holding steady? We'll talk with Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers next on AOA. information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. 
Well, we have the January Ag Equipment Sales numbers, and here to share those with us is Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Kurt, thanks for being with us again. What do the January numbers tell us? Well, the January numbers uh, are showing that, you know, we saw a little bit of recovery with the uh, uh, in the in the two-wheel drive tractor market this year already, and it seems like we're off to at least a decent start, up uh, 5% uh, from where we were this time last year. The bright spot specifically on that one looks like it's uh, over 100 horsepower tractors, what we saw about a, about a 20% increase. So we're about 200 more units of 100 plus horsepower sold in January of 19 versus January of, of uh, excuse me, January 20 versus January 19. So at least off to a, to, a, to a strong start on tractors. And why do you think that is? Well, as, uh, as we always kind of talk about it, it's a, it's a mixture of things, but a lot of it has to do with farmer optimism. And I think, you know, we ended the year or began the year with some uh, um, you know, movement on trade and some finality around USMCA as well as this, you know, potential first first step in the uh, in the China negotiation. I think that creates a little bit of certainty that uh, causes farmers to, to think that maybe this is uh, this this trade issue may actually be coming to a, a little bit of a of a conclusion, or at a minimum, we're at least going to have some security of what it's going to look like moving forward. So I'd say that's number one. I think number two is, you know, there's just that uh, you know optimism that comes with the springtime, and uh, you know farmers looking at uh, looking at planting season and looking at their tax returns and saying, you know, it was it was not a great year in in 19, but uh, you know I think uh, when when all things considered, there's some there was uh, uh, maybe a, a few bright spots here and there, and just people looking at the at the market with optimism. I, I think optimism is a key. Uh, as we look at this year, and as we've gone around of several of the uh, the winter meetings so far, there has been at least guarded optimism, if not outright optimism. Uh, even though we have yet to see these trade deals fully kick in, and and we're especially in China waiting to see just when and how much and, and things like that. But there now is more hope that it's going to happen. Uh, last year was more uncertainty. Now it seems to be more hope. I I think that's the correct way to say it. it it's uh, you know it's, there's so many analogies you can say. It's the light at the end of the tunnel. It's the uh, you know the potential for something that looks like it's going to be a you know, a little bit more clear, uh, you know, who, who knows what, you know, how you actually say it, but I think the, the key is, you know, we've been dealing with uncertainty for so long and you can't, you can't really, uh, you know, deal with uncertainty. You can deal with certainty, even if you don't necessarily like the outcome, you can plan for it accordingly. And so, you know, coming to some finality on some of these issues out there, I think is really playing into that, that overall, you know, cautious optimism and sentiment among farmers. So some improvement in tractor sales. Any other numbers or categories that stand out we should mention? Well, uh, combine saw uh, you know a decline in, in numbers in in January, but as a percentage, I mean as a percentage of combines, we're down about down about twenty four twenty five percent. Those aren't great numbers, but also recognize that there's not a lot of combines that transact in the month of January. So one month is not a trend make. That doesn't bother me as much. Uh, on, on this particular one, also considering that we started out the year last year in January selling a whole lot of combines, so I think that that too will that too will pass and kind of correct itself. And I'd say, you know, as you talk to your readers and as they're attending the farm shows and conferences this year, boy, there's some exciting stuff happening on the combine market. There's new machines all over the place. There's new technologies, 
And I think that's going to have a, have a big impact on sales. Uh, assuming the incomes hold and assuming commodity prices hold, I think we're going to see a lot of interest in those new machines uh, you know, come, come planting time. And certainly, depending on what the crop looks like during the summertime, I think we'll see some, some combine sales in a good place this year. Yeah, I I always look at these numbers that you give us each month as kind of a barometer of, of uh, farmer confidence. And uh, so we watch these closely. Now, here we are. The next time we talk next month, we'll have the February numbers. Now, now we're starting to get closer to spring planting time, and, and it'll be interesting to see if that sparks some activity. Yeah, the February numbers are always interesting because that also includes the USDA, USDA outlook. It'll have, you know, farmers beginning to look at, uh, you know, how how quick are they going to be able to get into the field. You know, the other thing is, you know, there are just those uncertainty things of, you know, we continue to talk about China. And, and uh, you know, I think we'll have a little bit more clear picture at the end of uh, with the February numbers. Uh, so I think, you know, the February numbers are going to be really interesting. We look at those in a, in a couple of weeks. Uh, you gotta, that'll be a lot of fun. And, you know, who knows? First quarter, uh, we'll, we'll see what the market looks like. I mean, the projected, the projections for net farm income, I think USDA estimates for 2020 are, are going to be down just a little bit is the projection. But then if you look forward, the 21 past net farm income is projected to go up quite a little bit over the next few years. So farmers that are in business for the long haul, I think that's, as you well know, they, they're not just looking at this as a one-time deal, one-year deal. They're looking at making those purchase decisions, uh, you know, for uh, you know for a tractor that they're going to hold on to for three, four, five years. So I think those will be reflected in January and really the rest of the rest of the year in 2020 as we look at these numbers. Still a tough market in Canada. Uh, Canada is is tough. Uh, there's no other way to say it. It's uh, I mean the, the pretty much down uh, equipment sales in in all categories. Uh, I mean, we're looking at at uh, you know, articulated four-wheel drive tractors, those big four-wheel drive tractors, there were 11 sold in the month of January as opposed to 70 this time last year. And that's just, that's just sad. Those are sad numbers. Um, no other way to say it. And there's so many things that are playing in Canada right now. The farm economy is pretty tough. And your heart just goes out to the farmers, certainly in Western Canada, that are, that are, that are really struggling right now. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what else to say other than it's just uh, it's, it's not very pretty up there right now. All right, Kurt, uh, we appreciate uh, you checking in with us each month to go over the numbers, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. You bet. Thanks, Mike. Okay. Will we see you at Commodity Classic? You bet. You bet. We'll see you out there and uh, invite all your listeners to come join us. Okay. We'll see you in San Antonio. Thank you. Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. That wraps it up on this Valentine's Day. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. Hope you'll be with us on Monday right here on AOA. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications. And it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions.